welcome, welcome everybody back to another episode of the Handsome Home Buyer Podcast. I'm your host, Charles, aka the Handsome Home Buyer, aka Captain Permit, aka El Julio Maravilloso, which means the marvelous Jew. Speaking of marvelous, Captain Permit's marvelous. You know it, I know it. Even if you hate him, you know you have to love him. 516-513-8838. If you need plans, if you need permits, if you have a building department problem, if you're in real estate, want to be in real estate, ever driven by a house, want to buy a house, if you don't need me today, you're going to need me tomorrow. Give the captain a call, 516-513-8838. If you have a house that smells like cat pee, is dated from the 1960s, has six inches of mold on the wall, human waste floating past the basement steps, notes, non-performing, performing, commercial land, gas stations, you name it. If it's real estate related, I'm easy. I'm low maintenance. You know what I'm going to say. I want to buy it. 516-777. Sold. All right. It's been an action-packed week in uh, Handsome World this week. We got the three acres in Oceanside. I'm interviewing zoning attorneys. Speaking of which, I have one of the greatest in Suffolk County here today, but we're not going to go there yet. We've been interviewing for the captain permit position because we're growing at an insane rate. Thank everybody for the love and support and all the business. I really appreciate it. We're always trying to get better for you guys, always trying to provide better service and you're going to get it. Obviously, there's a process to anything and the process and the ride is what life is about. That's what that's what living is, people. But there's a lot of great stuff. You guys are going to be updated in the next couple of weeks. We are in negotiations with a major hospital for our 7,200 square foot ground up development facility in North Massapequa. But let's talk about today's guest. So today's guest, I was introduced from uh, Elliot Leonardo, who is the man. This gentleman is a legend. I'm calling him the king of Brookhaven. He has done it all, seen it all. If you don't know him, you need to know him. If you're a realtor, you need to know him. If you're a developer, you need to know him. Anything, especially in the town of Brookhaven, this is Mr. Brookhaven. He's the director of Empire Bank. He was the president of Libby. He's a builder. He's an investor. He's an unbelievable human being. Father, grandfather, expert zoning attorney, Larry Davis. I am humbled by that. How do you like that? Uh, I am. I am very humbled. Thank under pro- you. <laughs> and I'm under promising and over delivering because I know what we're going to talk about and what the people are going to hear. And I've, I've wanted you on for a while. Because, I mean, the knowledge you have, the experience you have is, I mean, it's, it's insane. There's, there's few, if any, people that, that, that do. So what I want you to kind of explain first before we go into all the meat and potatoes of it so that people know is, what is zoning? And what does a zoning attorney do? Zoning attorneys and zoning are basically, you have town re- regulations when it comes to development. And they had classified different areas as permitted uses for different types of um, structures. So you have residential, you have commercial, you have industrial, and then you have different types of residential and industrial. You have residential A, residential B, residential C. And it, the difference is what you're allowed to build on and how big the lots can be and how big the houses can be and things like that. What zoning attorneys do are typically um, help run clients projects through uh, trying to get approvals um, in this quagmire of <laughs> municipal government regulation I mean <laughs> just because you're zoned a certain way doesn't mean you're gonna get to do what you want to do yeah. it, it's it can be very frustrating 
Larry is very eloquent in the way he describes it, but I mean, essentially, this is, it's a very difficult task what he does, essentially. I mean, zoning law is basically across the entire country and it regulates exactly what you can build. The type of building, the height, parking requirements, and the thing that drives me nuts as I learn and get into this is that just because you think you could build, like, so they'll say, oh yeah, you have this, it's zoned for this, you can build this, you can build, um, you know, up to a one FAR, like, great, I could build 12,000 square feet. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, but you need setbacks here and you need green space here. And oh, by the way, out in Suffolk County, there's no sewer, so you have to deal with the health department. And by the time you're done, the 12,000 square feet that they say you could build is 6,000 square feet. If you're lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky. And then all of a sudden, maybe your deal doesn't make sense. So, I mean, the level of complexity is just, it's crazy. Without an expert like yourself, it's, you're going in blind. And not only that, it changes every day. And that's and that's yes. that's more more frustrating than anything. You get to do something a certain way, and all of a sudden the game changes, and now you have to revert to um, other ways of doing it. And you may already be in contract with some of your clients to do it the original way, and now you you've got to just about face and go in a whole other, another direction on a piece of property that you have conditioned on getting certain approvals on. And now you've got to renegotiate your contracts mm -hmm. based on the changes that you're going to what your yield is going to be or what your um, square footage or your FAR or anything like that. So when you say that, so when you say, when you say it changes every day, I think about that, I mean, with the captain permit stuff we do, like there's New York State Building Code, which governs all of New York State. Correct. And then every township seems to have their shtick of things that they want to enforce or that they don't want to enforce. Like Town of Hempstead doesn't really care about egress windows in a basement where in Town of Brookhaven, you, you're, like that is like, Sac you need an egress window in Absolutely. a basement. Absolutely. So, and they're they're all different. Certain ones are tougher than others. And then you know, Brookhaven's become very tough in the last like three months, whereas before they were a lot easier. They have the amnesty program, and then it's a matter of who you speak to in the building department. So, even though there's these regulations that cover the whole state, depending on the minute, the person, the hour, the day, you can get a different answer. You need a roadmap. There's no way you're going to navigate Brookhaven Town. Yeah without a roadmap of knowing who to speak to on certain issues and certain requirements. And then even still, you will run into certain problems along the way. Um, I want you, to, we're just talking off the air, and I wanted you to tell the story of how you got into, basically the story that, that shaped your career and your, your life to this point, of how you got into um, essentially real estate. Well, I, it, it's funny, I, uh, I, I owe it all to my father because my father was a builder, um, is still alive. So he's a retired builder, developer. Okay. Um, so I was managing Burger King. I had a, I was a restaurant manager. How old are you? I was 21 years old. Okay. And I was the general manager of the Westbury Burger King on Old Country Road. And my dad came home from work one day and he had just gone back into the building industry after the economic crisis during the Carter years. So what year, what year was that? It was 83 is when he went back into it. Okay, so basically this was like, inf was inflation at a crazy, oh, interest it, rates at like 15% at that point or something like that? And they started coming down. There so we he went back into the building industry. They had an office on William Floyd Parkway in Shirley. And, he, and I came home from work one day and he said, um, I need you to leave your job and I need you to come work for me. And I said, I have one question. And he said, what's that? I said, when do I start? I said, I don't know anything about real estate. He said, I'll teach you what you need to know. So with that, I start with him, 
first day of work, he goes, we'll drive in together today, just today, because it's your first day. So on the way into work, he has a discussion with me. He said, this is going to last you your lifetime. I'm going to teach you what single and separate ownership is. And single and separate ownership, he goes through the whole process about how you can't have merge parcels um, in the same name that are next to each other because you have to preserve building rights because um, you have small lots in a higher zoning classifications due to up zonings from the town. So you have to preserve your building rights. I've made a career over the last 35 years from that conversation. It was like the most intelligent conversation, the most eye-opening conversation I ever had. And I learned how to build houses from the back end forward, from buying the land, getting the permits, digging a, digging a hole, putting a foundation in, yeah. learning all of that, dealing with the building inspectors. And then five years, seven years after that, I started law school. And I, I just decided I wanted to be an attorney. I went to enough closings and I said, I don't know why I'm not doing this. <laughs> so. So to uh, so the awesome thing about you, unlike pretty much every other attorney I met, is if you represent an investor, and I know you deal with a lot of them, you understand every aspect of their life because you're you're an active investor yourself. Mm-hmm. You know how to build, so you understand every aspect of development. And now you have the legal side. Um, I was just going to ask you why, like, why did you and how did you segue into law? I have um, another attorney friend of mine, Jim Clark. It's, it's interesting that certain developers like their sons end up becoming attorneys like he Jim Clark's father do you know Jim Clark? I do. So Jim Clark's father does a lot of gas station stuff and he turned to him and said like you know my legal fees are crazy you should go and become an attorney and he's like yeah I don't know how do I get clients he says you know you just you don't need a ton of clients you just need a, need a few good ones I'll be your first client. And it, it the way I got in it, it's a funny thing we were I worked for a company called Structural Technology Inc. Okay. They were probably the largest single-family builder in Brookhaven Town at one point. This was after working Not, with your father. This is with my. This was with my father. Oh, okay, okay. He was a partner within that organization. Got it. So I can tell you, in 1985, mm-hmm. we built and conveyed 125 spot-built houses. Wow. That is just. An incredible amount. That's insane. That will never be duplicated. No. A, A, you can't find the land to do that. Well, think about that. You have to have 125 pieces of property, 125 contracts to buy them, 125... Wait, these were already single and separate lots? These or are this all single no and separate No subdivisions. Lots, no subdivision, no development. This is single and separate ownership. Wow. We did it with two job supers. Wow. We were... We were Animals and a well-oiled machine. Holy shit! So, for the people out there that don't understand what we're saying, so essentially, what they did was they located, negotiated, and purchased 125 single lots that are ready to go, and then built the houses. This isn't buying a large lot and then dividing it up into five or six or ten house subdivisions. They're single and separate lots. Like, that's nuts. We did it. We self-funded ourselves. That's nuts. It was crazy. It was the greatest. I, I still say it, was, it must have been pandemonium. It was. But I'll tell you one thing. You know, I love what I do for a living. That was the best job I ever had in my entire life. I'm sure that's action, man. It was so much fun, and I did all the contracts, all the closings, all the land purchases. Okay. We didn't use an attorney for our land purchases. I took care of everything in house. Was it, this before you were an attorney? Perhaps before I even thought about going to law school. Wow. So what happened is my dad taught me how to negotiate land. Mm-hmm. 
what to look for, how to order title, how to do those things. Did you did you actually do the acquisition in the sense that you went out to find the properties or they had an acquisition team? I did. I used to send mailing cards out. Okay. I used to have the microfiche. I used to send letters out to all these people and we were able to find, I had some brokers that I dealt with and we were able to find all wow. of these properties. And it was all new construction. It was no gut rehabs. Every bit was new construction. And not this, one not one gut rehab. And this is what? Shirley, Mastic, Mastic Beach? Just Shirley? Shirley, Mastic, Mastic Beach. We would go into Yapank. We would go into East yeah. Patchogue. Mostly on the South Shore. It's wow. easier to build on the South Shore because yeah. of the soil conditions. It's all sand. Yeah. Leaches very well. You won't have sanitary problems. You don't have cesspool. You don't have um, any type of those um, issues. You don't have water drainage into your, you know, ponding up against the foundation. So yeah. we didn't have basement leaks. We didn't have those problems. Wow. Did all these houses have basements? Yeah. I would say probably 98% of them. Every so often we'd hit a high water table down in Mastic Beach. So okay. we would have to build those on a slab. These, and these were all spec houses? No. We would we would build to order. It was a different time. Okay. It, you had customers that would come in. We, they'd say, okay, we like this model. And I'd give them a list of land. And they'd go out and find the lot that they wanted to have their house built on. Wow. And it was, and it was made to order. So you guys purchased the land and then essentially pre-sold the houses. Yeah. So that's something that, like, I've only done that really once with a rehab. And it, like... It was the worst experience ever. How is it? Because I like to just finish them and be like, this is it, go. I mean, that's a whole other aspect of the process you have to manage, which... It was... it. Times are different. People, you have people are different. Different. Millennials are much different than the home buyers we dealt with. And we were pretty much a first-time yeah. home builder. You know, it was your... We built a 1,200-square-foot ranch called a Bermuda Ranch that if you drive around Mastic and Shirley, there's probably one on almost every single street. That's how we flooded that area. And we built overcode back then. So what was going on, which is an interesting point, because I'll buy a lot of these houses that were built before, that were built like in the 60s, that I use as rentals. And when we got these things, I'm like, they built these things with like bubble gum and glue. Like some of these like older, like 60s houses out there yes. are like built with like popsicle sticks. Correct. Like the floor joists, everything. Like there's no footings. They just threw cinder blocks on the floor. It's like, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, materials were much cheaper back then. Yeah. So we built two by six, um, 16 on center, one two by four, 16 on center yeah. was required. We put six inches of insulation in the wall. We put 12 inches in the attic and four inches in the basement. Yeah, that's a real We over-insulated a house. This is 1984 and 1985. That yeah. was not the code. No. So we exceeded what was required of us. We also put wood shake shingles over vinyl instead of vinyl. Wow. We had, yes, it, it was vinyl was actually an upgrade. Wow. Wood shakes were so inexpensive yeah. that we wood shaked all our houses. And if somebody wanted a vinyl house, it was an, it was an upgrade. What was going on in the world at that time? What was the movement? I mean, obviously the housing market started taking off, but like surely Massive Massive Beach was probably very different looking than it is today. Mm -hmm. What was going on in the world, the economy, et cetera, for you guys to be able to, to build 125 houses in a year? I would say it was the end of the Carter era and the beginning of the, Re of the Reagan era. Okay. Um, the economy changed drastically. I think during the Carter years, interest rates went up to 17%, 18%. Yeah. And when Reagan came in, and they call it Reaganomics, as you know, and yeah. in 1986, they had the tax code change, which is pretty much, a lot of it's still in effect today. 
Um, but you could see interest rates starting to drop. You could see a rise in the economy again. People were tired of, of going through that recessionary period. It was not as bad as what we went through in 2006, yeah. but it was pretty bad. So my dad went back into the building business. He was a hospital administrator for some years during those hard times. Wow. And then came back in, and they decided, and they started building houses. They still had... He was part of a company in the 70s called Shelter Technology. Okay. So it was similar people, similar, same location, everything. And they just shut down business for a bunch of years. And when they went to reincorporate, somebody had taken their name. Otherwise, they would have come back as Shelter Technology. So we had to wow. come up with a different name. I can't even imagine. So like I've, I've done a, a, a ton of rehabs, um, but 125 new builds in one year is, is insane. Well, that's conveying. We conveyed 125 houses. So we were, it, it started the year before as far as getting everything together, but yeah. we actually had 125 house closings. Yeah, that's what in, I'm saying. One, that's one every three days. So I'm trying to think, it's like how many, how many houses were you guys working on at that time? Like 160? I mean, it's probably a, I, about. 50 to 60. Oh, they're actually building, and then you had, but you had land for days. Correct, correct. We had, it's funny, on, I remember one street in Mastic, we ended up assembling seven single and separate lots, mm -hmm. and we sold them all all the same because it was a great street. Yeah. And I remember we, we framed five houses in five days. Yeah, that's Completely nice. framed, sheathed, and, and framed and sheathed, five houses in five days. Did you guys have... Did you guys have actual construction staff, or did you subcontract everything? We subcontracted the only. We subcontracted everything. The only staff we had were our plumbers. Our plumbers were part of us because, yeah. as you know, yeah, plumbing is probably the hardest. Plumbing is a plumber is a four letter word in my book. It it is for a lot of people. But when we had and we had a yeah. master plumber, yeah, and then he had his crew. his team. And they were on staff, and they were part of payroll and everything else. That we my advice to anybody, and I keep preaching this for like the last five years that I've been in this business, but nobody ever listens to me, is if you're not exactly sure what you want to do or you know your kid isn't someone that like wants to go to college and they're handy, be a plumber. Without a doubt. There is nothing better out there. I, it's, it's a license to print money, in, in my opinion. And if you have like, there's... There's the technician side of people, mm -hmm. and then there's the business side. If you are able to or smart enough to see that you should develop the business side as well, like the business side of your personality, as well as having understanding the plumbing industry and all the codes and everything, you can make a shit ton of money and be better than anybody out there because your competition is a nightmare. Without a doubt, and electricians aren't far behind. No. <laughs> They're right there, too. It's like, it's it's... A lot of trades, and it's just a, a lot of small business. And you know what? It's like I, I, I blame the school system because they don't teach you for this. They don't no. teach you this stuff. They don't prepare you for this stuff. Like no. we, guys like us, like we have to go out and I mean, you were lucky. You had your father who who understood this, yes. and then you went to school, became a lawyer, got a lot of formal education, was around a lot of great people doing big things. That's how you learn. And I, you know, being an attorney it was it was very interesting. Most attorneys get out of law school and they have to work for somebody. Mm -hmm. I hung my shingle as soon as I graduated law school. Okay. So I had clients already, my dad being one of them. So I started representing them. And because of my relationship in Libby and the yeah. Builders Institute, builders knew that I knew more than just law that I could help them when an issue came up on the town or an issue came up in construction because I understood it. 
and yeah. I still understand it. Like we'll have a conversation. I'll be at a closing, and somebody will say, you know, that crack in the floor of the fa- uh, uh, in the floor of the basement that's going to cause any any leak. And I look at them. And I said, no, it's not poured at the same time that the foundation is poured. I said it's an independent slab. There's nothing going to come up unless the water table changes. It's not going to leak. It, it and and they just they don't understand. And then they just look at you like, did he just drop that knowledge bomb on me? Yeah. How did you know that? You're an attorney. And that's what you get when you deal with Larry Davis people. <laughs> um, so how, so you're, go, you're, you're basically, you're working for your, with your father, you're basically an attorney without the title, and then you decide to go back and be an attorney. Go to law school, essentially. Yes. Did you, so what was it? Did you wait for like that full kind of, that kind of run of five, seven, eight years where you guys were really crushing it, and as it started to kind of mellow out, then you went back to law school? Well, I didn't go back to law school. I continued to to work for my father. I went to law school at night and worked during the day. Wow. I continued to work the whole time, and I went to Toro, and it was at Huntington at the time, and I have to tell you, it was one of the best experiences I had because... You went full-time or part-time? I went part-time. Okay. But I I had full-time for law school is three years. Mm -hmm. Part-time is four years. I went summers and I graduated in three and a half years. Wow. So I just wanted to push the envelope and get done. And um, it was, like I said, night school is different because the night students all have careers. So rather than being competitive with each other, we were all united and just trying to get through the process. And we would help each other. Nice. Whereas I understand the day students are very competitive over who's going to get what job, and and they're not so quick to help. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's a different dynamic. I go to I go to night school now, and I, I'd have to agree with you. It's it's very cool. There's a lot of camaraderie there. Everybody's working full time for the most part, so that um that Pro- makes sense. Professors are different too, to the night students. Yeah, they are because we're older. Yeah, they are, and they also I think there's also a different level of respect. Because it's like, A, you're older, and B, like, you're out there grinding it out. You have life experience, which yeah. these kids don't have. And depending on the school that you're in, mm-hmm. like, sometimes, like, I'm in NYU. I mean, you get these kids that, I mean, this is, it's a very expensive program. It's top three in the country. And I'll look up, and this kid is watching, like, CrossFit on his laptop because his father is the third largest developer in India. Right. And it really doesn't matter. Like, this guy doesn't really have, he, he already, his, here his family already owns, you know, 2,500 units across, you know, wherever. It's just, it's a different animal. So, I mean, this is kudos to you because most people, especially today, in your situation would be like, I'm just going to work with my father and ride this out. This is awesome. But you wanted to better yourself, grow, get uncomfortable, and you went to law school at night and busted your ass. Dad gave me a work ethic. That's one thing he did give me, absolutely. I paid my own school, I paid my own college, I paid my own law school. Wow. But what he gave me was a work ethic and the, and the want to achieve. He said to me when I was very young, he goes, you don't have to go to college. He goes, you do what you want to do, what makes you happy. But whatever you do, just make sure you're the best at it. He goes, I don't care if you're a garbage man, you be the best garbage man. He goes, you just find your niche and just do the best job you know how to do, and you'll go through life in a great manner. And I'll never forget that, and I instill that in my children, because I think that's one of the most important lessons I got out of life. Maddie, that's the nugget, bro. You got that? All right, I'll explain that later. Okay. But that was that was that was it. That was that was the gold, right there. But I um I, I agree with you 150%. It's like if either you do it 100% right, 
with everything you got or you, you just don't do it at all. And I feel like that's lacking today. And I'm like, am I getting old? Is Are things changing? So I'm curious to know with you in regards to how you've seen Long Island change, trends change, building change, and like costs, et cetera, regulation, people. Like you've been in the game a long time. You've been doing this almost 30 years. All of the above. Everything has changed. Yeah, and you and now I would argue that in the last five to ten years, the speed in which it changes is like 10x. Yes. I think government intentionally has slowed down development because as Long Island is getting built out, I believe that there is a slowdown in development and we have a different market than we had. Millennials are here. They don't want to own houses. Yeah. No. They want to turn their key, go in lock up their door and not have to worry about cutting the grass, taking care of the outside of the house, yep. maintaining their lawn, maintaining whatever. If something happens, they call the super in to get it done. It's a different lifestyle. That's why you see so many multifamily jobs opening up out there. But at the same time, the local government and the and the previous generation that owns houses is very resistant to that. So it's not an easy thing. It's, it's NIMBY all day, every day. Well, and I have to tell you, one of the most interesting things I saw in Brookhaven, and, and I was part of the staff for Libby that helped negotiate it, was the multifamily law. Please explain. Before you go into that, I'm sorry to cut you off. Tell everybody what Libby is. I actually joined because of the conversation that you and I had a year ago, and it's, been, it's an unbelievable organization. It's been very helpful. Uh, Libby is the Long Island Builders Institute. Um, they are a combination of builders and the trades that support the builders. And any and it's it's interesting because that's a pretty broad area mm-hmm. because you have attorneys that are that are members, you have developers, you have builders, you have mortgage plumbers, people, you yeah. have mortgage people, title people. It's like half our economy really, management companies. I mean this real estate is such a giant part. It's like more than 50% of the country's GDP. Right. And they're a trade organization, but they are also a lobby organization. Yes. And that's what their biggest focus is is to Preserve, and I, preserve. You would you would not usually associate that with building, but they preserve a lot of things. They preserve our rights to build. They preserve our rights to own property. They preserve land. Yeah, you know we were very instrumental in negotiating the Pine Barrens Act back in 1989. We were at the table. We helped draft that law. We helped form the guidelines. We helped of where development rights were gonna be transferred and that's why you have Pine Barrens credits. And that's how people got paid for their property back then when it was basically given up for development rights. So they're at the table all the time. They're in Albany. They go to Albany once a year and and they lobby our senators and our assemblymen. They are, and everybody thinks, you know, Libby is a four letter bad word. To me, Libby is a four letter great word. Yeah. I think we've helped we had a, used to have a bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. If you live in a house, thank a builder. <laughs> and that's the truth of it. Yeah. Somebody built your house. You're living here because of a builder. So why do you condemn them? Why do you chastise them? Why do you treat them as something less? You treat them less than you treat lawyers and real estate brokers, which are not treated very well anymore. But builders are below us. And it's not fair. It's, I mean, it's very interesting. People, people, obviously, everybody knows this. They, they fear change. They don't like change. Correct. People don't like the unknown. I mean, I've been in zoning hearings when people have talked to me like you would think 
trying to build a house on a slightly lesser lot is me selling kids into sex slavery. Like what these people say and do, like we, you and I have talked about um, things that you've been through and people, neighbors that have gotten upset and what they've said to you in the past. It's, it's mind blowing. I mean, it happened the other night. Yeah. I, I had to file a police report yesterday <laughs> because of what happened. People are crazy. Are crazy. Yes. I mean, I had a house out east of Massac Beach. The neighbor, he didn't like who I was renting to. He broke in the house. First, he tried to set it on fire by putting a cardboard box on the stove and turning it on. And when he didn't succeed because my foreman walked in and saw it and didn't think anything of it, put it down, um, he unhooked the hose from under the sink and flooded the whole house. Like, people are crazy. Yes, they are. And I don't think it's really... I don't think they have an issue with the builder, per se. I think they just have issues in their life, and they're looking for an outlet. Uh, I agree with you. And, but with that said, it takes somebody like you, with your temperament and education and understanding of the system, to be able to help builders navigate that. Because, like, a lesser or less experienced person will fly off the handle, they'll get emotional, they won't, you know, put the right argument in. I temper my emotion. Yeah. And I can tell you, I have some very contentious hearings um, before the zoning board, very rarely at the planning board. Planning board is a different different body, different altogether. Zoning board is where you get the volatility and the neighbors yeah. and, the, and even the board will get a little emotional at times. And I just try to stay focused on my job and stay focused on what I'm presenting and I mean the other night I had these two neighbors and I'm trying to get a house for some woman that is ill that she needs this house or this type of living in the community that she resides in and they just were had not they did not want to hear anything about it it was a 45 minute hearing for a single lot for one little house it was crazy I mean I think people need to understand that Zoning is law. That's why you're attorney and you're involved. It's a, it's essentially when you go to the BZA or Board of Zoning Appeals, it's a legal argument, mm-hmm. right? Because the way the law is written, there's there's room to to essentially argue or plead your case. Correct. And what we're asking for when you go to the Board of Zoning Appeal Appeals is relief. Yes. From the code, and yes. people don't understand that. Explain to people what what that is when you say relief. Okay. You, let I'll take your case. We just did a case for you. You had a 100 by 125 foot lot with a house that was set to one side. Yes. So what we applied for is to split that parcel into 250 by 125 foot lots Mm -hmm. to be able to build. Now we're in one acre zoning and everybody would look at you and say, how can you ask for to split a lot that doesn't even conform to one acre zoning into now less than that into one eighth zoning, which is what that yield comes out to eight lots per acre. How can you even present that application? And I will look, and I'll look at New York State law, and I'll look at how the map was originally developed and what's on the ground around it, and does it conform to the area? And I'll look at all of those factors. And then I'll have a discussion with my client over possibility, probability, cost factor, time frame, and the issues that we're going to follow through. So far, Everything I told you, has it come right to fruition? 100%. So that's where we are. So now we got denied. Which which you told me was going to happen. And I knew it was going to happen. You said, I remember you're like, we're going to get denied, but then we're going to go this route, and I think we have a good shot. And nothing is ever guaranteed, but 
you lose, you lose, uh, you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. Yes, and what I didn't know at that time was that there had been zoning board action within our 500 foot radius that had approved our exact application. Yeah, three times in the 70s. I feel good about it. Well, I feel good about it too. The chairman looked at me because he couldn't believe I came up with this. <laughs> because I have old maps in my office. I have maps from the 70s. Yeah, that are like gold. I mean, these books are just gigantic. And to go through these these books mm-hmm. tells a story of how something was developed, how it was in the 70s, and then I have the current books to match them up to see if there's been a change in the neighborhood to see how it is. And maybe the zoning board had some influence over it. So there's research that's done with it. I don't just take a file and go to a hearing. I do a certain amount of research before that happens. People, this is what 30 years worth of experience gets you. This is what I've been preaching. With all due respect to these attorneys, you don't hire a divorce attorney to handle your real estate business. You know, it's like you don't, you and you know what I'm talking about, right? Absolutely. I'm sure you go to closings all the time and you're dealing with, you know, a, a divorce attorney. Might be a nice guy, might be a great divorce attorney or a girl, but this is not what they do. I want you to talk about two things. Um, a, I want you to explain to people what went on in Shirley, Massey, Massey Beach in the sense that there was a lot of small 40, 50 by 100s, and then they were combined for some reason. Mm-hmm. And then kind of briefly take people through the process of doing a subdivision as far as, like, you have to go to the BZA. Like, what what does that look like for Certainly. people? Certainly. We'll start with Mastic and Shirley. Walter T. Shirley developed that whole area, bought large swaths of land, and then subdivided them into different tracks. So... I would say it was happened in the 40s and 50s um, because most of those maps were filed in the 40s and 50s. And what he used to do is he would get the subdivision maps done and then he would bust people out from the city. And that's why Mastic Beach has been developed like it is and that's why there's a lot of Italians because a lot of the area um, were Italian immigrants that came out and buy a piece of Long Island and you could buy it on time. So you could just pay him $5 a month, $10 a month until it was paid off and then wow. he would give you a deed. So it was layaway for land? It was. That guy's brilliant. It was. And the way, why you have 50-footers mm-hmm. and 60-footers and 100-footers and 200-footers is that as these people came out, they would buy what they could afford. Some people wanted two lots. They wanted a little wider. Some people could only afford one lot. That's and they why were... he sold a 50. Then, okay. then he would sell 100 next door because there were two lots combined. And then somebody else, and you, you may have a street where a lot of 50s were bought because a lot of family members came along and they, one bought one, one bought the next, one bought the next. And wow. that's why when if you were to go back and do the research, and I've been around long enough to see what had happened, you actually find that they were in family names. Yeah. And they go back and forth. It was very interesting. And that's why they've been developed in such a manner, and that's the argument I give to the zoning board as to whether you're conforming in an area, why there's... 10 50-footers in your 500-foot radius, but down the block you may have 20 50-footers within the same radius, and I have to explain to them. And I tell them that story, because that's exactly how it was developed. So getting to the subdivision part of it, you have two, in Brookhaven, you have two different types of divisions. You have a land division, Mm -hmm. and you have a subdivision. I predominantly do land divisions, which are four lots or less, because... I consider it like a minor subdivision. It's a it's a land division. It's yeah. a mine. It's not. That's a, what that's what they call a minor subdivision. Yes. Okay. Um, because typically, if you need one form of relief, just one, you go right to BZA. Yeah. 
PZA is quicker than going for a subdivision through planning because a subdivision is typically five or more lots. And when you go for a subdivision, you have to put in town maintained drainage, town road, town specs, curbs, sidewalks, recharge basins, and the like. You spend a lot of money in engineering. Yep. You spend a lot of money in a lot of time in getting it done. And then you have the added problem now of New York state law where you have anything built five houses or above, 10% of your job has to be built under affordable housing. Yeah. So four lot land division, you're exempt from affordable housing, you're exempt from town specs, you propose what you want to propose, and if the town grants it to you, that's how you build it. That's how flag lots are created, because they don't have the frontage yeah. that are necessary to comply with zoning. Like most of Brookhaven is A zoning, which is one acre zoning. Yeah. So you need at least 175 foot frontage yep. and, and, and 40,000 square feet. Now, zoning, when you hear one acre, it's not your typical 43,560 square feet. It's a builder's acre is 40,000 square feet. There's a distinction. Do you, are they still allowing flag? <coughs> Excuse me. Are they still allowing flag lots in Brookhaven? Because in, in Nassau County, there it's like a no go now. I've gotten quite a few approved. In fact, I got one approved about four or five months ago. That was the first one in that area. It was uh, we could form to zoning in every respect, manner, shape, and form, except for frontage. And the only way we could do it is by a flag lot. So I made the argument that first of all, that was the largest lot in the area and no other lot could duplicate it. So they were not setting a precedent by doing it. And flag lots are everywhere and they had to start somewhere. So let's start this community with that one. And they granted it. Interesting. So it's like, it's I'll get calls all the time from people that aren't really familiar with Suffolk County like in Brookhaven and they'll say, the lot's huge. It's like three quarters of an acre. You put like three houses on it. It's like, listen, it's it's very different. It's a very different animal. It's 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 very town specific, county specific, um, and then you have the added health department issues. That's what I was just going to ask you. Explain to people. And people don't get this because they're like, especially now that I'm doing commercial, I get a lot of residential agents will be like, I have this piece. It's commercial. It's huge. You know, you're buying three acres in Oceanside. You're going to build this. I have six acres out there. You could build three times that amount. I'm like, no, because it depends. Right. Explain health department and how important that sure. is and what it means. Well, Oceanside, you have something that is very coveted. And sewers. The sewers. The sewer word. Yeah. Absolutely. Brookhaven, we don't have a lot of areas that are sewered. So therefore, Suffolk County Health Department has jurisdiction over it. Most of, when you get east of Nichols Road, almost everything is one acre zoning for health department purposes. Okay. And the only way, there are about two or three different ways to circumvent that. Number one is you look at the 78 tax maps, or the 81 tax maps, I'm sorry, to see if it was a created lot on the 81 tax map. If it was and it's undersized, it's exempt. Wow. And you can build it. The other thing is there were maps that were signed off by the health department. Your lot that we just tried to subdivide was one tax lot in 81. And you're going to say, well, if it's only one tax lot, how am I going to get a sanitary credit? There's another exemption that a lot of people don't know about. Wow. So I use that tactic for your lot. This and, is what you pay for, people. And that is worth its weight in gold, having that little bit of knowledge. Because otherwise, what do you have to do? You either have to get a transfer of development right, go to board of review, have them accept it, or buy a Pine Barrens credits. Now, I can tell you Pine Barrens credits are, I just sold 41.6 credits. They were $85,000 a credit. Explain to people what why people buy Pine Barrens credits and, and how that works. Okay. 
they are now used. You know, we're going to go back to an earlier conversation. We talked about the change in the multifamily code, how Libby orchestrated that. Yes. A lot of times when people would go for rezonings of multifamily, you would have community input, and the community would want something in return for their giving you their blessing over that. And it was an open checkbook for the developers. So Libby sat down with the town of Brookhaven, and they created a formula. And it's a land intensification fee. And what you do is when you are changing your zoning, that you have to comply with the formula, and now you have to purchase a certain amount of Pine Barrens credits to redeem them. That is in lieu of giving community benefits. Okay. So the game is you know what you're going to pay for it. You do the formula. You know how much it's going to cost you. You don't have an open checkbook to your community over what they want. There is rational basis, a rational way of determining how much your cost is going to be. So now you get approved for, yep, that's a two-step process. You have to go to the town board and request a rezoning. And that is not an as-of-right application. That is discretionary. If the town, if it gets brought in for a change of zone application, the town can do what's called an ENC, which is an elect, they elect not to consider. And then you're done. You're finished. There's no Article 78 in that because it's not an as-of-right application. It's discretionary, so the board does not have to listen to it. If you make it past there and you go for your rezoning, then you still have to go to the planning board and you still have to get your, your site plan approved. And that is where all of your buffers and your landscape packages and your lighting packages and all of those things come into play. It's a lot of work. It's it a lot of preparation. And this comes back to a point where I try to drill home to people every day. I got a call about this yesterday. Education. Like, I want to touch on your um, your your career as a developer, as an investor currently. Like, people call me up every day and they're like, Charles, I want to be you. I want to flip 100 houses a year. Like, how do I do it? And I'm like, I'm going to tell you how. I was like, you go and get an education. You spend, you tr you call, call Siobhan and you train for two or three or four years, however long it takes to get to the point where you know you're not going to get hurt. And then you grab your balls and jump and you learn more along the way, but you prepare. And people are like, oh. And I'm like, so you're gonna go and buy a piece of land that you think you can subdivide and then call Larry Davis and say, I wanna subdivide this, and then he's gonna say, well, we have to deal with this, 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 and this, and by the way, you might not get this. Right, exactly right. And that's exactly what we face. And an education is the best thing you can ever do for yourself and your family. And I don't care what it is. It may not be just in real estate. It's in general. Yeah. Education is worth its weight in gold to any, for whatever you're going to do in your life. I'd like to uh, I'd like to close out with uh, with one or a few if you have kind of like um, investment blooper stories of yours, whether it be you know things that trials and tribulations you went through when you were learning, doing flips, doing new construction, things clients have done or gone through. Just it's always interesting to hear because. This isn't, this isn't easy. Like, we all learn. If, if you wake up every morning with a plan, but if, if you think there's anything you can do other than just ride that monster and see what happens, you got another thing coming. Well, the good thing is I don't have many bloops because I usually guide my clients before those bloops happen. If they do a bloop on their own and I get yes. stuck trying to fix it, sometimes we fix it, <laughs> sometimes we don't. I had a client buy a bloop. Not through me. Yeah. He bought a bloop. And it got condemned by the town of Brookhaven for demolition. And they actually knocked it down? They actually knocked it down. 
Wow. So now he bought a piece of vacant land for what he thought he was going to rehab. Wow. So That's a bad day. That's a bad day. And I, uh, if I had it a week earlier, I could have prevented it. Because you and I had a situation like that. Yes, we did. I bought a house in Patchogue. It was labeled to be knocked down. You went in. You did what you had to do. We squashed it, renovated it, and sold it. And everything was great. Correct. But, I mean, when you were, when you were building houses, were there any moments where you were just like, you just sat on the curb and you're just like, I'm like getting brain damage here. Like, it is just... It's hard. It is. This is difficult. not an easy business. And I would argue, and maybe you, I hope you agree with this. If you don't, please tell me that it's getting significantly harder. Oh, without a doubt. You can't run around and find 125 lots to build you in can't. a year now. No. And I have one great story for you. When I was working for my dad, we owned a, a single lot on a street in Shirley. And there was a developer up the street that owned a lot next door. And he comes in one day. And he comes in our office and he says, Larry, I got a problem. And I said, what's your problem? He goes, you own a lot on that street. I said, yeah. He goes, well, I own the lot next door. I said, okay. He goes, my surveyor messed up and we built our house on your lot. <laughs> what? Kid you not. I kid you not. So he goes, what can we do? I said, it's very simple. I'll deed you our parcel. You deed me your parcel. Wow. You pay all the fees. Have your attorney draw up the documents. They're identical lots. I don't want to hurt anybody. Which is the gentlemanly thing to do. That's how you stay in business for 35 years. Yeah. By doing the gentlemanly thing. I do a lot of work in Brookhaven. I deal with the town attorney's office all the time. Love dealing with them. We always solve our problems. The only time we have to litigate is when we run into problems like we do with the zoning board. Yeah. And you know what? That's gentlemanly as well. Because it it's... They are protecting their zoning. I am protecting property rights. They're doing their job. I'm doing my job. The courts will decide it. And it's and it's not personal. It isn't. And not it, at all. And at the end of the day, you can shake their hand and and they respect you and you respect them. And, and we do. And some fights you win and some fights you lose. And then after the fight is over, we'll laugh about it at, at, a, at a matter. I, I don't like to lose. That I can tell you for a fact. <laughs> I don't take a case. Yeah. To the zoning board, unless my client has already agreed that if we lose, we're going to Article 78 it, which means we're going to sue the town on it. Yep. That is that is just the way I work, because I don't ever want that board thinking they get one over on me. Yeah, which is what we're going through right now, and I feel good about it, and I'm really excited for the, uh, for the result, and uh, we'll see how it unfolds. Larry, you're a gentleman, you're a wealth of Thank knowledge, you. unbelievable person. I really appreciate you coming down. I mean, if you're doing work in Brookhaven, people, if you're an investor... You, you need to know Larry Davis. How do people get in touch with you um, if they want to reach out, if they need your services for closings, for land use, for consults, for anything? Call the office, 631-289-1600. Very simple. And obviously, Captain Permit's simple too. Do you need a permit? 516-513-8838. I'm pretty simple myself. I'm low maintenance. I'm easy. I want to buy it. 516-777-SOLD. That's a wrap, people. Orgulloso estoy de mi herencia judía Benjamin Levin, Shlomo, cuando me llamas